Well, it's good to celebrate the beginning of our Advent season with you. Uh, at my house, we've had Christmas lights up for a while. Uh, my youngest is 12 years old, and um, she's already had a few iterations of Christmas decorations, actually, in our house. This year, um, there was the lights on the ceiling that was the, with, uh, with tape. <laughs> they fell in the middle of the night. Um, Angels were coming down. Um, they've been resecured with command strips or whatever they are. But uh, now we're finally in Advent. And uh, just really appreciate our musicians leading us through worship and also those who decorated the building yesterday and help us think about Christ and celebrate his birth. Well, today we're in Malachi chapter 2, verses 17 through chapter 3, verse 5. And maybe surprisingly, to some of you, there's an Advent message here in Malachi. I'm going to read the text beginning in Malachi 2, 17. I'll finish in 3, 5. And when I finish, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And you can respond, thanks be to God. Follow along, please, as I read, beginning in Malachi 2, 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in the former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment, for I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together and then look into this text. Father, we give thanks this morning that you loved your people so much, much that you sent the messenger of the covenant you sent Jesus. He came to purify his people and he will come again to purge the earth of those who do not fear him. And so today, our prayer is that you would help our hearts to turn towards you, that we would be people who truly fear the Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Sometimes 
God's response to injustice seems slow and soft. We look at the persistent brokenness of the world around us and we wonder why the wicked prosper. Why is it that the ungodly get away with murder? Why won't God do something? To be honest with you, sometimes it feels like we live in Gotham City without Batman. Or things have gone to Pottersville without George Bailey. That's what it feels like in our world sometimes. It's frustrating. I mean, have you had some angst in your heart because you see things that are wrong and it's almost like nothing is done about it? Have you had some anger inside at different times because you see blatant injustice and it's almost like no one will say anything? That's how these people felt. I mean, look around you. You have an honest day laborer. He's barely living from hand to mouth. While at the same time, a crooked CEO navigates tax loopholes and gives himself a million dollar bonus at the end of the year. Politicians act as if they're above the law and they seem to get away with it. Maybe closer to home. Maybe your single neighbor down the hall skips classes parties all the time, lives immorally, and it seems like their life is great. Well, you, on the other hand, limp along, battling depression because you're lonely. Fighting for purity feels like it's relentless, and the tedious studies keep you buried all the time. Why does life seem to work that way? Or how about this? Your ungodly coworker tweaks the numbers, adjusts the bottom line, and gets the promotion, but you work honestly and you're overlooked. It just doesn't seem fair in life sometimes. The miscarriage of justice is so pervasive in this broken world that many of us are tempted to unbelief. If God is good, why doesn't he do something? If God is righteous, why does evil prosper? It's almost like our hearts begin to fill up as we watch the news, as we look around us, our hearts fill up with this sewage of restlessness, impatience, frustrations, and complaints. It happens today just like it happened back in the day of Malachi. Notice the first thing that surfaces in our text this morning. It's that people complain about God's justice. You see it in chapter two, verse 18. Where, look, I mean, just, just underline this question because it's the same question that people are asking today. Where is the God of justice? Seems like you can just about do whatever you want. Does God really care? I mean, why serve the Lord? Have you ever gotten to a place in your Christian journey where you've honestly questioned whether it's worth serving Jesus? I mean, is it worth spending your time here? Is it worth obeying the Lord? 
Is it worth self-sacrifice? Is it worth denying yourself? Is it worth it? Because all these other people out there, they do whatever they want. They seem to be doing just fine. Why sacrifice? Why do what's right? Why serve the Lord? Why don't we just indulge in sin? Look at verse number 17. Look at the second half of verse 17. Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. He delights in them, apparently. Why don't we just eat, drink, and be merry? Because it seems as though God smiles on the wicked as much as he smiles on the righteous. There's no justice in this world. That's what the opening of this text is saying. People are complaining about God's justice. Well, God's tired of it. He's wearied by their lies and their complaining. So look at chapter two, verse 17. Look at what the prophet says. He looks at the people and he says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. I wonder if some of us in here have wearied the Lord with our thoughts. Is it really worth serving the Lord? Why do the wicked get away with their wickedness? Evil seems to prosper. I don't know if it's worth it. I wonder if we have wearied the Lord with our thoughts. You've wearied the Lord with your words, it says in verse 17. He is tired of your whining. Your complaints are tiresome. He's fed up. Have any of you parents ever felt that way? Some of you, your kids are sitting next to you. You're not going to say anything. Mom, you never take us out to eat. You guys are so restrictive. All my friends have their own cars. When am I going to get some wheels? I'm not a baby. Why do I have a curfew? Am I ever going to get my own iPhone? And the list goes on and on and on until finally the parents are like, I can't take your complaining anymore. I had my kids memorize Numbers chapter 11, verse 1. Write this one down, parents. And when the people complained, it displeased the Lord, and the Lord heard it. I mean, sometimes parents understand exactly what God is feeling like here. He was tired and wearied by their complaining. Now, there's an important lesson I think we should learn in the end of chapter two here, and that's this. While it's okay to complain to God, it's not okay to complain about God. Notice that these people were not bringing their complaints to the Lord, they were talking about the Lord. It is okay to say, God, I know you're compassionate, but it feels like you're angry with me. It's okay to say, God, I know you keep your promises, but it doesn't feel like they're being fulfilled in my life right now. It's okay to say, I know, Lord, that you have steadfast love, but it feels like it's dried up. It's okay to give these I knows about God's character, but I feels about our own hearts. That's okay to give to the Lord. Pray to him. I mean, part of your prayer life should probably be these gut-level truth-tellings to God. These raw pouring out of your heart to the Lord. Why, Lord? How long, Lord? Will this ever let up, Lord? Where are you in my pain, Lord? This doesn't seem fair, Lord. You should talk to him that way. The psalmists did it, didn't they? There's a whole book of the Bible called Lamentations. 
It's bringing to God your pain, bringing to him your complaints, bringing to him your sorrows and the things that don't make sense. Lay out your frustrations before the Lord. Share your heart candidly with him. He already knows. Trust him enough not to mince or measure your words. Lay out your angst. Ask your questions. Spread out your troubles before him. You see, the difference here is these people weren't spreading out their troubles before the Lord. They were talking about the Lord and they were judging him. They were not coming to the Lord in their pain. They were filled up with pride and they were complaining about God. They weren't talking to God. They were whining about God. So here's the indicator. Listen, when you're bemoaning speech moves from the second person, you, to third person, he, you know you've moved from lament to complaining. When you stop praying to him, Lord, you know that I'm hurting here. And you start saying, God doesn't care that I hurt. You've moved to complaining. That's what these people were doing. And listen, friends, complaint is rooted in disbelief and discontentment. That's what the people of Israel were doing here. Notice what they say about the Lord. Everyone does evil, is good in the sight of the Lord. He seems to delight in them. He delights in them. Where is the God of justice? They're complaining about him instead of complaining to him. And that's the first thing that unfolds here. So what happens next in the text is it's not just that people complain about the Lord, but the Lord isn't gonna let this go endlessly. What we see next in the text is that he responds, he clears the air. And it's almost as if he tells these people, listen, the judge of all the earth is coming. Where's the God of justice? Where's the God of justice? Why does evil seem to prosper? Why do the sinners seem to get away with it? And finally, God clears his throat and he says from heaven, listen, the God, of, the judge of all the earth, he is coming. And you see that in chapter three, verse one. Look or behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek You're longing for the God of justice. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. The people are complaining, but the judge of all the earth is coming. You really want justice? You really want justice? I hope you know what's coming your way. It's one thing to complain about problems. That's easy, right? I mean, we can all complain. The mayor isn't doing this. The president isn't doing this. When will Congress finally? It's easy for us to complain. But it's another thing to accept the solution. It's easy to gripe about how much we need change. But are you really really willing to take the necessary steps to bring it about? There are people who whine, my marriage is dysfunctional. Well, are you willing to do something about it? My finances are a mess. Yeah, but are you ready to get some help? 
I'm tired of this or I'm tired of that. Yes, but are you willing to put it into the light and let God do his work? It's easy to accuse God of being unjust, but are we really ready for the remedy? Are we really ready for his justice? Well, chapter three, verse one basically says this, ready or not, here I come. He's coming. Behold, I send my messenger. Now, I'm gonna give you some annotations for chapter three, verse one, to help it make sense to you. Because there's actually um, a lot of connections in the scriptures at large. So chapter three, verse one says, behold, I send my messenger. Who is this first messenger? Well, in parentheses or off on the side margin, put Luke 7, 27. Luke 7, 27. Here's what it says in Luke 7. See if you can pick out who the messenger is that Malachi's talking about. I'm gonna begin in Luke 7, 24. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. He's talking about John the Baptist here. Okay. What did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. In other words, in Luke chapter seven, verses 24 through 27, Jesus says, do you wanna know who the messenger of Malachi 3.1 is? The messenger of Malachi 3.1 is John the Baptist. He's the one who's going to go before and prepare the way. Jesus says, that's who the prophet Malachi was talking about here. So let's go back to Malachi 3.1. Behold, I send my messenger, John the Baptist, and he will prepare the way before me. Now you could put in parentheses Isaiah chapter 40, verse three. He will prepare the way before me, just like Isaiah said. Here's Isaiah chapter 40, verse three. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill made low, and the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Who was it that was going to prepare the way of the Lord and make straight the path for the coming of the Lord, it's John the Baptist. Okay, back to Malachi chapter three, verse one. Behold, I send my messenger, John the Baptist, Luke 7, 27. And he will prepare the way before me, just like Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 40, verse three. Keep reading. And the Lord whom you seek, who's the Lord that we're seeking? We'll go back to chapter two, right at the end in verse number 18. Where's the God of justice? The Lord you seek, this God of justice that you've been questioning, this God of justice will suddenly come to his temple. In other words, the Lord's gonna arrive at his temple. 
And by suddenly, the word there you could, you could put in parentheses, surprisingly. He's going to surprise people in his temple. Can you think of an event where people were surprised at the arrival of someone in this temple? There might be a few. You might have Simeon and Anna when baby Jesus arrives. I mean, that was amazing. Or maybe you're thinking about John chapter 2, where Jesus goes to the temple and flips over these tables, makes a whip, and drives out the money changers and all of these animals. And they remember zeal for the Lord's house has consumed him. It's almost like the judge has come and is setting things straight in a rather surprising way. The Lord... Malachi 3.1, the Lord whom you seek, this God of justice, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, here's a, a separate messenger, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Who is the messenger of the covenant? Well, I want you to think about Luke chapter 22, verse 20. Jesus lifts this cup at the Last Supper and he says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The messenger of the covenant is Jesus in his first coming. Behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. So a forerunner is going to come, John the Baptist. He's going to prepare the way. This was a common ancient Near Eastern practice where when someone special was going to arrive in the village, before he got there, they would make the path smooth. They would remove boulders. They would fill in any of the potholes. The king is coming. Make the path straight. That's what John the Baptist was going to do for the son of man, the messenger of the covenant, who was going to arrive. Now, I think it's interesting that the text says, behold, he is coming. Basically, God's saying this. You, you want judgment? You're craving justice. It is coming. Now, this part of our text indicates, I think, something interesting about the human heart. And that is that in one way or another, we all want judgment. Now, that might surprise some of you. Some of you are like, not me. Not me. Oh, I think you do. I think it's because without judgment, Life would be meaningless. It would be utterly senseless. Nothing would matter without a judge. There's a man named Arthur Miller. He wrote about this, explaining that for much of life, we act as though it's a case at law. It's a series of proofs. We're trying to lay down the evidence. We're bringing exhibit A and exhibit B and exhibit C, trying to prove how brave we are, how smart we are, how good of lovers we are, what good fathers or mothers, how wise, how powerful, how successful we are. We live our lives trying to prove these things. But in all of those efforts, we're seeking to prove those things because somewhere deep inside, we expect that life is headed towards this place where we will stand before a bench and we will be commended or we will be condemned. Why is it that you look around at culture, why are people trying to prove that they're good? Why do people want to be noticed for what they do? 
Why are people trying to establish how wise, powerful, or successful they are? It's because they believe there is a judge. Otherwise, it would be all worthless. This author, Arthur Miller, he lived most of his life with this prevailing expectation of judgment. But just before his death, in his last days, he changed his mind. He claimed the bench was empty. There is no judge, or in other words, there's no God. Now, you might expect that that realization for Arthur Miller brought him a sense of joy. No judge. But it just wasn't the case. At the end of his life, he was overwhelmed with a sense of despair because life without a judge is life without meaning. All the things he had sacrificed for, all the things he had pursued, all the, all the effort, all the trying, when he decided there's no God, there's no judge, there's no anything, it left him with nothing at all. Life was utterly meaningless. There was no better there was no right, there was no meaning. Nothing mattered, nothing made a, dif a difference. The loss of a judge, my friends, means the loss of a meaningful life itself. And actually, I think that's why these Israelites craved a judge. Where's the God of justice? They wanted something. And I think all of us want that. But the judgment we crave is simultaneously the judgment we can't handle. People complain about the delay of God's justice. The judge of all the earth says he's coming. But what we're going to come to realize in the last section of this text is that it means everyone will be held accountable. It's kind of like we crave justice, we want a judge, but I think it's because secretly we think we're going to be okay. We think the judge is going to rule against other people. They're not as good. They haven't tried as hard. They haven't given up as much. Somewhere in the back of our minds, we're proud. We think the judge will rule in our favor. So we complain about the God of justice. The judge of all the earth says, I'm coming. But what we don't realize is that all will be held accountable. And by all, I mean not just those people out there. It's people in here. It's, it's us. Well, the people are upset. I mean, the context of this, this passage this morning is the people are upset. They're saying, why doesn't God act? Where is this so-called God of justice? They're craving judgment. But God's question then that, to them is kind of like this. Are you really ready for my coming? Look at chapter three, verse two. Take a look at our text. You want justice? You, you, you want the judge to come? Chapter three, verse two. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? You want the truth? You want the truth? What is it? You can't handle the truth. <laughs> you want the judge? You want the judge? Who can endure the day when he appears? Is there anyone in the room that wants to raise their hand? Say, yeah, I'm, I'm ready for the judge to examine every area of my life and rule with justice. Is there anyone in the room really that brash, that foolish? When God's justice comes, it's applied to all. It's a measuring stick that doesn't just rule against others, it rules 
against us. Notice how our text says that when the judge comes, some will be cleansed, but others will be condemned. All will be held accountable. Some will be purified. Others will be purged. Look at chapter three, the second half of verse two. Three, two. He is like a refiner's fire, like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi. He will refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. What we see here is that God will purify his people. So when he comes and holds all accountable, we realize that what he's going to do for his people is he's going to purify them. His work will start among those who are his. The passage says he'll transform the sons of Levi, namely the priests, into a holy community. Now, this may signify God's work among the people of Israel at large, because remember, they were called a kingdom of priests, Exodus 19.6. But what we do know is he was going to do his first work of making his people acceptable. He was going to cleanse them. Now, there are some various opinions that go along with this part of the text, and This is one of the difficulties of prophetic literature. The prophets speak sometimes kind of like like looking at mountains. And that is that you can have two mountains that are like this. And when you look at them straight on at a distance, you're not sure whether they're like this, like this, or like this. You, You have a hard time telling the depth of it. You, you see this come to bear like in uh, Isaiah chapter 61 when Jesus teaches in the Nazareth synagogue. Here you have this prophetic word from Isaiah, but Isaiah's talking about the first coming and second coming, but the people of Israel kind of saw it like this, and Jesus helps us understand it's like this. Well, the same thing is kind of happening here with Malachi. We do know that Malachi is talking about Christ's first coming and his second coming, we're not quite sure in this middle section which side goes with which, and there's various opinions. Now, does this part of the passage go with verse one and his first coming, or does it go with verse five and his second coming? This is what I do know. Jesus came the first time, that first Christmas, and he came to purify those who were his. The two images used in the text, do you see it there? Fire and soap. What fire does in separating slag from metal and what soap does in separating dirt from clothes, Christ does for his people. He separates our sin from us. Do you remember what the psalmist says in Psalm 103, 12? As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. In his first advent, Jesus, the messenger of the covenant, he did come to cleanse us. Think about about the new covenant. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you. You will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness. Jesus, when he came the first time, took the record of debt that stood against us and he nailed it to his cross, Colossians 2.14. 
His blood atoned for our transgressions. And though our sins were as scarlet, he washed us whiter than snow. Isaiah 118, praise his name. Now notice how the purifying of his people isn't just so that they can live their lives however they want. God's gonna purify you and then go live however you want. God's gonna cleanse you, then go flourish in your own endeavors. No, that's not it. He's going to cleanse us and purify us so that we can better reflect him. One author noted how a refiner looks into an open furnace or into a pot and he knows that the process of purifying is complete. The dross is all burnt away when he can see his image plainly reflected. Friends, that's what Christ is doing with his people. He's cleansing us and purifying us, not so that we can live our lives however we want, but that so we can reflect him, so that we can offer him worship that's acceptable, so that we can give him praise. Look at chapter three, verse four. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in former years. In other words, Christ will purify his people so that they can offer acceptable worship to him. Why does God do a work of forgiveness in our lives? Why does God lift us up out of a miry pit and set our feet on a rock? Why does he rescue us from the trouble we're in? Not so that we can live our best lives now for ourselves, but rather so that we can glorify him, praise him, and reflect his image in all of the earth. Zechariah 13.9 puts it this way. I will refine them as silver is refined. I will try them as gold is tried. Then they shall call on my name and I will hear them. I will say, it is my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. My friends, he cleanses, purifies, forgives his people so that we can worship him. So this first part, everyone's gonna be held accountable. He shows how he's gonna purify his people. But the last part, what's going to happen is he's going to purge the ungodly. Remember, all are gonna be held accountable. His own people will be purified and those who reject him in unbelief will be purged. Now, this comes in verse number five and it's a clear reference to his second coming. When Christ comes again, when he returns, he will consume the unrepentant. Look at chapter three, verse five. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, the adulterers, those who swear falsely, the oppressors. In other words, he summarizes it. Those who don't fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So here we have this list of condemnable sins. These sins are characteristic of those who don't fear God, or in other words, unbelievers. Things like sorcery, people who practice divination. Historically, they would study the stars and try to interpret life through God's creation instead of looking to the creator. They would watch smoke rise. They'd watch how oil forms patterns on the surface of water and try to interpret things apart from God. He says, that's not the life of a person who fears me. They're gonna be purged. Sorcerers, adulterers, those who engage in sexual activity outside of marriage, the Ashley Madison type. He's going to purge. Those who swear falsely, perjurers, court liars, business deceivers, 
And finally, in verse 5, he mentions oppressors of various sorts. People who take advantage of the poor, the widows, the orphans, the sojourners or immigrants. These sins characterize those who will be judged. Now, this shouldn't surprise us. As you fold through the pages of Scripture, you see kind of echoes of this all along. Those who are characterized by a lack of fear of God will not enter the kingdom of God. They will be purged. They will be consumed. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, they don't have the fear of God and they will be judged, consumed, condemned. The Lord will purge the ungodly. I love how Paul doesn't end there though. In that passage in 1 Corinthians 6, he says this, and such were some of you, but you were washed You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, my friend, don't wait for the purging work of God to consume you. Instead, turn in repentance and faith and let him purify you in the name of Jesus. All will be held accountable. All will answer for their sins. But those who believe in Jesus, he takes the punishment you deserve. The death penalty that stands against you, he's willing to bear on his cross. He was put out so that you could be brought in. He was punished so that you could be forgiven. He died so that you could live. So will you accept his gracious gift of salvation this Christmas season? He'll forgive you, cleanse you, and make you his own. Will you turn your life to him? Let's pray. I wonder if you'd just bow your heads and close your eyes, take a few moments to reflect on the word of the Lord and respond to him this morning. Don't just be a hearer. Be a hearer who obeys the Lord. You know, we often act like we want shock collar justice from God. We want him to zap sinners. You should punish that person or that person. But maybe this morning we should look within, see our own sins that need to be dealt with. Maybe we should be honest and really answer the question, do we really want the Noahic flood? Do we really want the fire and brimstone judgment of God to rain on all of us right now? Folks, the Lord will bring justice one day. He's not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness. He is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. So this time of waiting is actually a window of amnesty so that rebels like us can repent and come to the Lord. Do you need his purifying work this morning? Do you need to receive his purifying work before his purging work begins? May the Lord prepare us for his coming.
God's word do a work in us today.